0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Before the COVID shutdowns, Hearsay was a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. We are soon to make a return, but in the meantime, please enjoy this rare podcast episode during pandemic times. This episode, Remembering the Flood, was recorded live at the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan in May 2021. After you listen to the stories, stick around for a conversation with our special guest, Katie Traska-Miller, the Midland Center for the Arts Manager of Community Engagement. The first story of Remembering the Flood is performed by Jenny Lowe.
1: So it's midday Tuesday, and I'm in our basement checking on this annoying leak in the wall that we can barely contain, and I spot it. Blue foam. Well. Blue insulation foam, to be exact. You know, the kind that comes in big sheets for construction projects? It's even stamped with the Dow diamond logo. I mean, how much more Midland can you get than that? So while I'm trying to wring out the towels from this leak, I have this mind-blowingly amazing idea. Let's take this blue foam and build boats and float on the flood water. So I load myself up with foam board, drag it outside, deposit it on the patio, and I excitedly yell to my four kids, come build boats. I think I'm more excited than they are. In my mind, I picture the five of us floating along like a mother duck and her four little ducklings, peaceful, serene, and orderly in a row. However, pirates quickly commandeer all of the building materials. And not only do I not get to build a boat, but the images of peaceful exploration are quickly turned into pirate attack, where two kids at a time would row their boat as quickly and as hard as they could into each other. Nothing quite like trying to make your sibling fall into the flood water. So by now it's early evening, and I still haven't had a chance to try out the boats. I mean, after all, it was my idea. So when dinner is over, I decide it's my turn to sail. Daniel, my 10-year-old, wants to come with me So together we prepare the rigging, grab two sticks to push the boat around like a gondola and get ready to sail off to a land of imagination. Except I can't get in the boat without tipping it over and instead of peacefully gliding off we pull the boat up on the grass and my son literally launches me off into the water. The boat is only a few feet wide and very tippy and I somehow have this strange anxiety come over me of falling into the flood waters and all I can think of in this moment is whose idea was this? We finally get going and just a few minutes into our journey my phone vibrates with a text. Now my phone is in my pocket and I'm scared to move enough to pull it out. I can't let on on how high my anxiety is rocketing so I sit and listen to the sound of my son pushing the boat along. The sun starts to come out a bit And I close my eyes, wanting to remember this moment of being with my son on a homemade boat in the floodwaters during a pandemic. But it is so peaceful until my phone vibrates again. Then I feel it again and again and again and again. Finally comfortable on the boat, I pull out my phone. Wow, not only have we been out for an hour and a half, but I now have a lot of texts to read. Skimming through, I, I keep seeing the word evacuation. I open the one in all caps first. 7.09 p.m. A structural collapse of the Sanford Dam is imminent. All residents along the lake and river evacuate immediately. Those are my friends. I have to go help them. But then I realize my son and I are on this little foam boat on a flooded yard and a dam is about to break. My heart stops beating for a moment and then starts pounding again so hard and quickly I cannot hear anything. I shakily put my phone back and yell, we we have to go. We paddle as fast as we can, but it feels slow motion. As soon as the water is shallow enough, we jump out and run, and it is not a glamorous Baywatch run. I am in my farm boots, water is splashing all around us, we are getting soaked, and we just can't seem to get out of the water fast enough. Eventually, we're also evacuated. We head to my parents' house in town where the kids have a sleepover on the main floor and my husband, Michael, and I sleep in the basement or rather, Michael sleeps soundly, while I have a shared moment with half the county on Ask Midland at 3am, as we all try to find out if the dam failed or not. By Wednesday morning, the sun is brilliant, and the sky is blue. I'm not sure how much sleep I got, but the first thing I do is check Facebook and I see it. The videos of the dam breach. One can't just unsee the fury and power of water unleashed on your own community. When I see that my house is okay, I'm filled with gratitude, but then guilt. This feeling that I did something wrong by surviving. As I look around, bewildered at how quickly the water had receded, I see my kids and their joy of being home. Of course I want them to be grateful, but in their joy, how do I help them to care about the needs of the many that are suffering? Michael and I immediately start planning with our church to help organize volunteer efforts. When the planning first starts, we hope that maybe 100 people will show up starting the Saturday of a holiday weekend to help. Friday night, I prayed, God, please send hope to this community. And Hope came by the hundreds, upon hundreds, upon hundreds. In just three days, over 2,500 volunteers from all over the state, some even from out of state, showed up at our church to help strangers in a community that many had never heard of. Known by their yellow helping hand shirts, these volunteers join hundreds of others from other churches and organizations to muck out houses from the top of Wixom into Saginaw County. Not long after the volunteers head out, I start to see reports on social media about these angels in yellow. Incredibly hardworking, always smiling, and not just rescuing people from mud, but from hopelessness. Okay, I hate wearing the color yellow. I usually avoid it at all costs. I never buy it for my kids. It's much too bright and way too cheerful for me. But I have never been happier or prouder to wear a yellow shirt. Throughout the volunteer effort, I oversee social media and phone calls, gathering addresses and requests help, uh, for help from community members. Many are family members from out of state trying to get help for their loved ones, but the messages that get me the most? Neighbors reaching out on behalf of neighbors, people who are dealing with their own devastation but take the time to care about and think about others. I get a midday break and head to a work site with my husband Michael. Our two oldest kids, Margaret and Daniel, are already there working with friends. The piles of stuff on the side of the road are enormous. Carpet that had turned into 1,000-pound sponges, drywall, blue insulation foam, furniture, And memories. The sun shines brightly and it is so hot and humid. Before I make it too far down the street, a family with young children approaches me and asks if I want a popsicle. They are unable to help with mucking out, but they want to help in whatever way they can, so they are taking icy treats to the volunteers on this incredibly hot day. Grateful for this small act of well-timed service, I pick out a red popsicle, unwrap it, and it immediately starts dripping sticky red juice all down my arms as I walk. Up and down the street, I see people working in yellow shirts, so many people, moving from curb to house to curb to house and back again. I follow a group to the back of a house and can't believe what I see, a huge hole, nearly the entire length and width of where a basement wall should be. All I hear is this constant scraping of shovels as volunteers in the basement shovel mud into five-gallon buckets. Then another person takes the bucket to the edge of the hole, then lifts it up in the air over their heads to someone else who empties it a short distance away, then brings it back again. It's exhausting, sweaty, back-breaking work. I look down the hole into the shadowy basement and see three filthy kids. Two of them are my own, but the third? The third is my daughter's friend who lives across the street in a house that was flooded in a very similar way to the house she's now working on. The water was so fast and powerful that it ripped a huge hole in her basement and pushed cubic yards of mud inside. They even had a small tree that ended up in their house. This family had suffered significant damage and had their house deemed uninhabitable. Yet she, along with her dad and her brother, after working long tiring, emotionally draining hours with a crew of volunteers on their own house, went out to serve. They weren't the only ones. Many others were flooded, yet still went out to help their neighbors. But talk about making light of a bad situation. This family took that tree that ended up in their house, replanted it in the huge pile of mud that was now their front yard, named it David, decorated it with work gloves and a few Christmas ornaments that were found in their basement. At the end of a long day, we head to my parents to pick up our two youngest children. They are not old enough to join us at a work site, so they are given the charge to keep their high-risk grandparents at home. As I get out of the van, I look down and I am covered in dirt. My yellow shirt is no longer yellow, but a, a strange grayish green. Since we didn't have access to running water all day, my arms are still sticky from the popsicle juice, and they now have dirt and some cottonwood fuzz stuck to them in patterns of sticky red drips. Daniel, my son, is the dirtiest of us all, too exhausted from work to even see his grandparents. He curls up on the grass outside and immediately falls asleep. Margaret, my oldest, just sits, trying to process what she saw while volunteering that day. Too dirty to go inside the house, I walk around the back por- to the back porch. Wonderful smells of clean laundry hit as I pass the dryer vent. And then I see it. A cute homemade clothesline with work gloves strung up one by one by tiny colored plastic clothespins, and a pile of now clean yellow shirts to fold. My girls wanted to help too in whatever small way they could. Turns out I didn't need to worry about how to help my kids care about others in need. They're learning from you. Thank you.
0: Next up is Katie Geyer.
2: As a public information officer for the city of Midland, when I respond in emergency situations, I typically do a couple different things. I handle media inquiries, I write press releases, I manage our social media channels, and I consume my body weight in Hershey's Chocolate and Diet Mountain Dew normally for me those are all pretty tame assignments but in the case of the midland dam failure in may 2020 we were thrust into a national media spotlight unlike anything that i had personally ever experienced before through that unique experience i got a pretty interesting perspective from the other side of the phone and the computer screen and the things that i witnessed are some memories that i'm never going to forget as long as i live At the time the dam failure happened, we were still in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. For me, that meant working remotely. And as the parent of a small child who was also at home at the time, it meant working in the most hostile work environment I have ever experienced. (laughs) Our house did not have room for a home office, and my daughter was three years old. So we decided to move our camper into our driveway in front of the house so that I could have a private space to work. It was in that camper that smelled like mothballs, wearing sweatpants that were faded and a baseball cap to cover my unwashed hair during our numerous Zoom meetings that I would first learn that the Edenville Dam had failed. And it was in that smelly camper at that tiny kitchen table where I would write the emergency communications that would be read by thousands of people all over the world in the coming hours and days. On the night the dam failed, Governor Whitmer held a virtual press conference to address what was happening in Midland. In her speech, she included some verbiage from a press release that I had written earlier that day. As I sat at my tiny camper kitchen table, I was motionless. Staring, my eyes glued to the laptop screen. This was huge for me, and my heart was beating so quickly, I actually thought that it was going to come out of my chest. As I started to recognize the words that were coming out of her mouth, I said a few words of my own out loud. I think they started with, holy, well, you know the rest. I'm not going to finish it. I've always dreamed of hearing the words that I'd written said by a U.S. President Or a governor or a really rich and famous actor someday but uh, hearing them while I was sitting in a camper in my driveway in Millington Michigan late at night was not part of that dream on top of all of that the irony of this entire situation was not lost on me I was having one of the biggest and most triumphant moments of my entire career all while we were preparing for a disaster of historic proportions that was going to significantly alter other people's lives in a lot less positive way. But even though this wasn't exactly as I'd always dreamed it, and the circumstances certainly weren't positive, I still felt like this was a really, really big moment. I tried to sleep that night, but between the adrenaline coursing through my body, the anxiety of what was still to come, and the real and probably sometimes imagined notification sound of my cell phone going off constantly, I eventually just gave up on sleeping altogether. That night, I found myself sitting in my dark living room, the only light coming from my phone screen as I messaged back and forth with a resident on the city's Facebook page at 3 a.m. She was in the evacuation zone for this disaster, and she didn't know what to do, where to go, or what she was going to come back to if she did leave. She was scared and she just wanted somebody, anybody to listen, even if that somebody was a faceless stranger on her local government's social media account. At that moment, I didn't even think about what time it was or if this was even part of my job description. She needed me and I wasn't going to log off until she didn't anymore. We train on these disasters every year and during those trainings I never once doubt what my official role is and what I'm officially supposed to be doing but in that moment sitting in my dark living room tears streaming down my face I wondered if she knew that the person on the other side of the screen was officially just as scared and unsure as she was. After a few days working remotely from my two-star camper accommodations and finally a little bit of sleep, I was able to begin staffing the public information desk in person at the city's Emergency Operations Center. To try to give our limited staff somewhat of a break, uh, we decided to break it into shifts. And I was stuck with the 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. shift, which sounds like a bummer because if you think about the best time to be outside in May, probably in the afternoon and evening. The great thing about the EOC, though, is that it does not have any windows. So once you get there, you have no idea how nice it is outside or really any concept of time or place at all. The other great thing about the EOC is that they feed you a lot. On one of my first nights, I was minding my own business and stuffing my face mindlessly with leftover molasses barbecue when the public information phone line rang I answered it distractedly, probably offering some lackluster greeting, to which the caller on the other end of the line responded, hello, this is so and so from the Wall Street Journal. I froze. The Wall Street Journal? I glanced around that quiet windowless room, trying as hard as I could to silently swallow the giant mouthful of brisket I had while also trying to commit to memory as much of this moment as possible. As my eyes scanned the room full of monitors containing data and tables overflowing with food, I started thinking, am I gonna be in the Wall Street Journal? What if I say something really stupid? What time is it? How long has that potato salad been sitting out unrefrigerated? these are the questions we never ask. Thankfully for me, all she wanted was a brief update on current conditions and to be added to our media list, both of which I was happy to do very easily. And just like that, I had survived my first national media contact relatively unscathed. So as I look back on the events of last May's dam failure, I realize that there are a lot of things that have changed both in my life and my role in the last year. I am still working remotely right now, but I've traded in my camper accommodations for new office space at my kitchen table here in my brand new home in Midland. I definitely check the caller ID a little more closely before I answer the phone now. And if you Google me, you will find my name quoted in news articles related to this disaster in media outlets that if. You ask for my opinion. I'm far too underqualified to be quoted in. But there are some things that haven't changed in the last 365 days. For one, I still believe now more than ever that I have the best job in the world. If you message me on the city's Facebook page at 3 a.m., I'm probably still going to respond right away. And if you're on a Zoom call with me, there's a very, very high likelihood that I have not washed my hair that day. Thank you.
0: The next story is by Jerry Cole.
3: All right. I'm a lifelong resident of Sanford. It's my hometown in every sense. My dad was fire chief in 1947 to 1997, and I grew up riding on fire runs with him, going to car accidents, that sort of stuff. I was hooked on being a fireman at a very early age, and I actually joined the department when I was 18. I worked at a chemical plant here in town for 30 years, starting out as a fireman, then later on becoming a supervisor. Between working at the chemical plant and 45 years with the fire department, I've been to a lot of different type of emergencies, involved in the Freeland train derailment, uh, some chemical releases, any major fire in the area, as I, was, I was always involved one way or the other. I've had a lot of experience and training and managing incidents like that. Then on May 1st, 2020, I was appointed Jerome Township Fire Chief. The pandemic was our number one concern. We were trying to keep our firefighters safe, uh, making medical runs and managing other sort of life issues. We had a, a flood watch in my first day as Fire Chief Great, we're going to start out with a flood. That passed, no incident. I thought, okay, that was my flood event for 2020, one and done. (laughs) All right, As, as a firefighter, I was well aware of the potential of a dam failure and the hazards associated with it. We had a plan, we talked about it, but I don't think too many people ever thought it was something that would ever happen. On May 15th, the weather changed for the worse, rain and lots of it. The dams began lowering the water levels at Secord, Smallwood, Edenville, and Sanford. The days were spent reviewing plans, checking out equipment, making sure people were good to go. We had lots of communication with the emergency management coordinator. Then on May 18th, we were advised we could expect flood levels to meet or exceed what we experienced in 2017 when 11 homes in our area were flooded. Numerous roads were closed around Midland County. And from my experience, I knew the people in the low-lying areas around Sanford were going to be flooded again. Some were just getting their lives back to normal. Later that night and into the a.m. hours, we wound up doing a door-to-door uh, notifications of pending dangers at over 700 houses. We got done early Tuesday morning. and by the afternoon, myself, about four other fire chiefs, and the county sheriff, had a meeting up to the Edenville Dam at five o'clock with the uh, people that own the dams, a group of engineers from the state and other places, and a few others. We were having a meeting to figure out what we were gonna do about the situation we were facing because the more facts came in, the worse it looked. As we were talking, I finally just asked a question. The, motor- the door-to-door evacuation the night before took six hours. I knew if the, if the dam failed, we would not have six hours. The plan called for two hours. So I finally asked the question, can we get three hours for sure notification if the dam's going to fail so we can get the firefighters mobilized, get them out, do the notifications, and then get them out of harm's way? I was reassured that not only three hours, but we could have six plus hours. But we didn't know 100 yards from us the dam, the compound, or the impoundment had already started failing. Uh, contractors working on it. We were in the process of calling 911. Probably two, three minutes after we walked away from that meeting, our radios and pagers were going off the dam and failed. So, so much for our six hours of notification. Minutes later came the dispatch, first dispatch. And that's kind of the first real touch of reality when you looked at your phone and, and you saw that text that said that Edenville and Sanford needs to evacuate. You, you knew it was real then. So we started calling for a, a, a motorized evacuation. We deployed our firefighters. They used sirens, lights, loudspeakers on, on the fire trucks. They got into the areas that we all knew were going to be flooded in a matter of time. Less than two hours after being at the Edenville Dam, I was at Saginaw Road Bridge over the Tittabawassee River. I was reporting to the EOC what I was seeing through my binoculars. I "Watch the water coming over top of the spillway in Sanford, and it topped the dam. Two things stood out to me right at that moment. So working around engineers for 30 years at the chemical plants, I knew a quick check, it had been one hour and 53 minutes since the dam failed, so that water's topping over the dam. I also knew in the plan, it called for one hour and 50 minutes to two hours for that to happen. And the only thing I could think of was, I got to meet the engineer that did the calculations on this. This is amazing. He hit it right on the head. So. The other thing was, the thing that, you hear the cliche that you, you can't believe your eyes, but when you're watching that water come over the dam and over the spillway, I couldn't believe it. This was a flood that was never gonna happen. My hometown is in the path of destruction, and there's nothing any of us can do about it at this point in time. So our troops rolled out, they got back in the station. We did 11 rescue runs that night to get people out of places they stayed too long, and four of us spent the night at the station. 4 a.m. Wednesday morning, I got up and I walked down to check and see if the water was still coming up, and it was. Uh, it got within 150 yards of the fire station. And all I could think was, okay, enough. It's time to stop this nonsense. You know, we got we got to stop this thing. So, but it did stop. And like I said, 150 yards from the station. By that time, the river crest at 35 feet. Most of the buildings in Sanford were under water. I did a quick assessment, 70% of our firefighters had minor to significant damage at their houses, their personal houses, and they were still doing the deed. When the sun came up on Thursday morning, May 21st, I got my first look at what happened in my hometown. Seeing the houses swept off their foundations, washed a block, two blocks away, and piled up like they were some sort of toys. Uh, Some buildings were completely gone. As I stood there in a a foot and a half of mud, thinking it looks like the lunar surface or a war zone or something like that, so later that day, we met up with the firefighters from Coleman and 47 National Guards people. We completed a, a wellness and a hazard check for all the areas impacted by the flood. By that time, some of my firefighters had only had minimal amount of sleep over the last couple of days, and they wouldn't go home. And finally, at that point in time, as chief, I gave them the order to go home, rest, something else happens, I need you on deck. So an hour or two later, I went back downtown All the firemen I sent home, and I have pictures of them, carrying stuff out of the businesses. They were down there working. You just can't keep some guys down. In the following days, I was involved in searching a number of houses where the people weren't accounted for. It was amazing between everybody from the village to the county, how we accounted for every person. And then there was ones we couldn't account for. Originally, I thought, we made it through. Nobody hurt, nobody dead. Now we're going through these houses. Two of the houses had all the furniture piled up at the end where the river actually washed through it. And it was all caked with mud. So then you realize you've got to pull it apart piece by piece and dig through the mud because you're looking for a human. And uh, that's what you do. That's, that was kind of on-the-job training. You figured that out. But we ended up accounting for everybody. No one died. No serious injuries. No fire trucks damaged or anything else like that. I'll always be thankful for the emergency responders, especially our fellow firefighters that are willing to help. It wasn't just Midland County firefighters offering either. We had firefighters from all over the state calling or just showing up at the station to do their part. We had had an individual from down by the Indiana border, his name's Dan, he's a fireman. He brought his own skidster and loader up, worked two weeks nonstop up here. He's back in Sanford right now. He came back up, took another week off, and he's back up here working, helping people. So, one other group I'd really like to thank too is the residents of our community. The people did the right thing. They trusted the first responders. They heeded the warnings on the next door alerts. They did the right thing, they were getting out. We only had a handful of people that wanted to try and stay, so kudos to the community. Once the water went down, there was an army of volunteers in Sanford helping clean up, from high school age to retirees. And a year later, today, there's probably 200 people in Sanford volunteering to help, and there's still plenty of work, but it just amazes me. I real- and through this whole thing, I realized major events I went through earlier in my life, such as those fires, hazardous material incidents, train derailments, and things like that, We're preparing me for that few days right there. That significant event when you're wondering trying to figure out what's going to happen next. So, but with that said, if anybody in the audience is thinking about becoming a fire chief, one word of advice, don't do it during a global pandemic just before the worst flood in your state's history. (laughs) So it's a heck of a learning curve. A good friend of mine summed these events up very well with a one-liner. I'll spend the rest of my days being thankful for the things I never knew I could lose. Thank you very much for your time tonight.
0: Next up is a story by Jake Huss.
4: So on a Tuesday morning, one year ago, As the manager of historical programs and exhibits here at the Midland Center for the Arts and the Midland County Historical Society, I was preparing to perform an oral history interview over Zoom. You'll remember this was mid-lockdown, so of course there was no childcare. My wife took my then three-year-old son and six-month-old daughter down to the basement that I had spent the last year and a half finishing to watch cartoons in our home theater. It was a pretty good day, pretty normal as far as pandemic goes. And then the following Friday, we even had a neighbor walk down our street with a party platter from Subway. That's a good day too. (laughs) Saturday, all my friends and family show up to offer to help me clean my basement. This is starting to be a good week. Sunday, just for standing in my driveway, a restaurant association van pulled up and gave me a selection of box dinners. Not to mention at this time, we had record levels of volunteers coming into work because they wanted to see their local history not only survive, but thrive. Sounds pretty wonderful, right? And it's easy to do that when you don't mention the flood within the pandemic. (laughs) But the truth is the dam's broke. I didn't have access to my home or my office from Tuesday evening to Thursday morning. And when I did get into my home that Thursday morning and I opened my basement door where my children had been playing two days ago, I was met with the sight of 400 little brightly colored plastic balls from my children's play pit floating in four and a half feet of water. That day, my dad came early in the morning. We spent most of the day draining the water out of my basement, took a long time, then we went home. The next day, I went to work, by which I mean the history campus on Main Street. I spent that entire day working with wonderful students from CMU as my basement at home sat drained, but still filled with my family's soaking life and we boxed stuff up from the Bradley home, and we brought it here to be safe at the Midland Center for the Arts main building, which was also flood affected. That night I went home, and I cleaned a little more of my basement, and I filled garbage bags full of my family's clothes, which were soaking wet, laying in the laundry room so that they could be washed at my in-laws, because of course we lost our washer and our dryer and our water heater and our furnace and my 90-inch home theater screen. I know, that's the biggest shame. Let's just say it. Well, I am very fortunate to have a large family and a lot of friends, and the following day on Saturday, they did all come over and they helped me with everything from cleaning little plastic children toys, ripping out drywall, tearing up floor. And you have to remember, these are all the same people that helped me install it for a year and a half, six months before this. But what really stands out during that day was the lunch. My mother had brought over sloppy joe, fruit, chips, and pop. What a wonderful barbecue. And we all sat covered in grime with a very clear line on our wrists where we had decided for a half an hour to physically and metaphorically wash our hands of this event. And things got really normal in kind of a weird way. My buddy John turned to my brother Luke and he said, you guys getting those uh, school lunches they're having delivered? That's kind of nuts, right? At The same time my brother Joe turned to my dad and he said, you know, I don't think Levi's going to play soccer again this year. A lot of people have stories about tense Thanksgiving or, you know, really ruckus Easter's, but I can tell you, bar none, that was the most bizarre party I have ever hosted. (laughs) But I'm glad we did it because in one day, with the help of my friends and family, we got that basement completely cleared. And that was my life for some time. It was chaos, Um, and in fact, The shirt that I'm wearing is a big symbol of that chaos. I wore this shirt one day in early recovery when we had a mitigation crew going through the wreckage of the Dowseum basement on the History Campus on Main. I spent that entire day bouncing back and forth between following that work crew through the silt and grime of the basement, rescuing what artifacts I could and then leading a big group of volunteers, wonderful volunteers, who were cleaning carriages and sleighs on the lawn in 90 degree heat. And you can still see the stains of that day on this shirt. But when you look at this shirt, you can also see the title of the book. Maybe not those of you in the back row, so I'll say it. This shirt is from Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. And a year on, Our archives are being recovered by professionals. Our collections are in the process of being restored. And my basement is back, not with a 90-inch screen, but with a 110-inch screen. (laughs) Floods come, darkness falls, but if you wait and you look for it, the sun also rises.
0: The final performer telling a story of remembering the Flood is Terry Trotter.
5: So I walked into the room and all eyes were on me. I had just agreed to begin work as the new CEO at Midland Center for the Arts and I was being introduced uh, to the staff. Bill, the board chair, spouted some pleasantries about my previous experience, about the things I'd done in my career, how excited they were to have me joining the team at the center, and then he turned the mic over to me. So teamwork, uh, a vision for more programming in this great community, more engagement in education. I talked through my list of the things that I hoped that we could accomplish together with the new team. I was really excited to come to Midland and to learn this new community and to use my skills and experiences in a different context. So I spoke, the staff asked me some questions and then we closed the meeting. Now Phyllis was sitting right down front and as the meeting concluded, the mic was returned to its stand and she made a beeline for me. She stuck out her hand and she said, Hi, I'm Phyllis, I do the programming and I'm retiring. And there it was. It was an immediate opportunity to make an impact. And you know, I felt ready for this. I knew how to program artists and entertainers. I was connected in the industry. I knew I could find someone that would help us both in the interim and the long term, or whatever we needed. It was an opportunity to make change, to solve my first challenge, because this is what I had been hired to do, to help our staff and our organization have the greatest impact in our community. So I knew where I'd begin. My job was to use the skills, experiences, and networks that I'd formed through my career to that point to answer questions, to help find opportunities, and to fix problems. And so that's pretty much what we did for the, first, for the next four years. You know, we had a PR crisis here. We had unexpected funding cuts. We had shows that didn't sell well. We had shows that sold out. We had dinosaurs that needed to be moved into the building that didn't fit in the freight elevator. But all along the way with the help of a really talented team we rolled with it and even when things got dicey i always kind of had a general sense of what needed to be done and how to manage through to get to the other side so then it was march 12th 2020 and we were uh, walking into our bi-weekly all staff stand-up meeting and you could tell that people were really nervous two days earlier The governor had declared a state of emergency due to the first two detected cases of COVID-19 in the state. Meanwhile, we were in the busiest season at the center. We had shows all weekend starting the very next night. We had school field trips booked solid. And the staff wanted to know, are we going to shut down? Well, while I didn't have all the answers, I had certainly dealt with the potential of cancellations due to the weather or other acts of God. So I told them what I knew. We would cancel Friday's performance because the artist wanted to reschedule. The rest of the weekend's events would stay unless we heard differently from the governor. I'm assuming everybody knows how that turned out. (laughs) We did, of course, cancel those programs and shut down, and that ended up being a much longer time period than I would have ever anticipated. So, of course, by May, we were still working through it and trying to figure out when we would be back how we would continue to pay the staff and the building expenses when we had no shows and events happening. And then it started to rain. Now, I had already been through one flood here in Midland. In 2017, we had significant water in four of our five history buildings, and we had water back up here at the main building at the center. So we knew we had to prepare. Now, even though the staff was all working from home, uh, I was on the phone early the morning of May 18th with our operations team, And we knew that we needed to stay home except for an emergency, and this was clearly going to be one. So we called the crew together to get the history campus ready for the anticipated flood. And you know, it seemed like we were in pretty good shape. But then the dams broke. So the next morning, with my house thankfully dry, I headed out early to see what was happening around town, still not fully comprehending what was being called this historic 500 year flood. So I went to the center first, knowing that the power was out. And as I approached, I breathed a huge sigh of relief as I saw the front door open and a thick black cord running down the sidewalk out to a generator sitting right in front of us here. And I thought, oh, thank goodness, at least the fish in the aquarium are safe. (laughs) My operations team told me that things were secure, but we needed to stay out of the basement for now because power systems were still underwater and it just wasn't safe yet. Now, of course, getting to the history campus on West Main Street was impossible. It was still underwater. We had seen drone footage and knew that the Dome Center, where our historical archives and libraries were housed, the building on campus that we did not think would flood, was wet. So the next afternoon, our production director canoed in and confirmed that the Dome Center had nearly two feet of water standing in it. Later that night, Uh, I heard that the water had receded enough that he could get in by a truck. He called me and said everything was wet, but he was opening it up and placing fans so we should be able to begin work the next day. I thanked him and said I'd meet him there in the morning. Meanwhile, our operations and museum teams were readying the forces of volunteers and experts in museum and artifact damage. I was told we would have an incident, an incident commander sent from the Michigan Museums Association on site the next morning, and we were set with a slew of volunteers that had been coordinated for throughout the day, both local and museum professionals from across the state. <laughs> and I pondered the irony: we were under a mandated stay-at-home order, at the same time many people, myself included, had been told to evacuate their homes, and as we were soliciting volunteers to come out to a hot damp and closed building to help us clean out mud and muck. And then I confirmed with the team that we had all of our COVID protocols in place because this would be our first time actually using them. So Friday morning, I woke up, put on a pair of old boots and headed to the history campus. I was absolutely prepared to see mud, to see water, to pretty much see chaos. What I think surprised me the most as I approached the entrance was the giant whiteboard and the guy standing there in front of it in the orange vest who was calmly assigning volunteers to a series of teams and jobs. And this was Jason, our incident commander, who I learned had been trained through a National Museum Association program to help organizations run these types of disasters. Jason and our team had the the scene well under control And I spent most of my day on the phone talking with board members, with the media, coordinating with staff about the operations and everything taking place. And about midday, I walked through the soggy, wet, muddy building and tried to get a full picture of what was happening. I peeked in the conference room and I saw Nicole and Katie, our data manager and our outreach manager, both wearing soaking wet gloves, mud covered, mud covered boots and pulling soggy, wet drywall off the studs around the room. Crystal, our archivist, was scrambling from one team to the next, table to table, helping the volunteer crews sort through, soaking wet hundred-year-old books, sagging boxes of papers, and dripping wet old quilts, separating them into piles to go to the restoration company. Two of our board members were hauling boxes of archival material from the top shelves in the research library into the 24-foot truck in the parking lot so that they could be brought over here to the center and wouldn't be damaged by the humidity and mold at the history site. Of course, it was Memorial Day weekend. It was hot and sweaty. Everyone was in masks. It was not easy work. I remember grabbing a bottle of water and going out behind the Dome Center to just sit for a moment. My mind was spinning. Our, our team was amazing and our community really showed their true colors. We were going to get this cleaned up. But it was also becoming abundantly clear that this would be just the beginning. There were so many questions I had no idea what the answers were or even who to ask. I did not have experience with natural disasters, let alone a disaster that happened in the midst of a global pandemic that had us completely shut down. I decided at that point I needed to head home a while and check on my family who had been working with our church on flood cleanup that day. It was Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, and as I pulled out of the parking lot and drove slowly up West Main Street, which was still caked in wet mud, I rounded the corner onto the straightaway just before Dow High School. And sitting on the, uh, sitting on the side of the road was this small blue canopy tent. It was kind of like those ones that you take out to the soccer field to, to, so you get some shade. And there was a guy standing in the tent with a few coolers stacked in front of him and a homemade poster board sign affixed to the tent that said, free hot dogs and water. I lost it. <laughs> I cried the rest of the way home as all of the pent up emotion of the pandemic, the flood, the uncertainty, and just the humanity that was on full display hit me. And you know, it was the image of that man, his tent, his free hot dogs, that stayed in my head, not just during the immediate flood crisis, but even beyond as I realized that it's so easy to feel like you can't make an impact in the midst of overwhelming circumstances where there aren't readily known answers. It was something that was hitting me very personally as an organizational leader who's supposed to have answers and resources and be able to fix things. Well, the next day, inspired by my nameless friend and his hot dog stand, My family and I made up Memorial Day picnic boxes with broths and potato salad and watermelon and cookies and distributed them to church families whose homes had been devastated by the flood. It was a reminder to me and to my family that just doing something, even one little thing, does make a difference to someone. And that even in the midst of being overwhelmed, taking an action that has a positive impact on someone moves the needle. While we did get through the immediate flood crisis within the next few weeks, we got the dry artifacts moved from the history campus to the center, we got the wet papers and artifacts frozen and dried so that they could be restored, and the water and the mold were finally out of the buildings. But the overwhelming feeling was really just beginning. I had come to this job knowing that I would learn something new every day but also feeling like I had sound experience, knowledge, connections, resources to lead the staff through challenges and opportunities. COVID and the flood, that what would you do if scenario was not asked at my interview, (laughs) nor was it ever in my background or training. Tonight, in fact, as you sit here, the center is still struggling to recover from both events. We sit outside where it is safer from the pandemic that while waning is still very present in our community. Our offices, the museum spaces upstairs remain closed as we have yet to fully repair the power and rebuild our buildings. And I have an entirely new vocabulary of alphabet soup, working with FEMA, the SBA, getting PPP loans and applying for SBOG funds. I did not train for any of these, these things. And yet, I still do have to have some answers, provide some direction, and ultimately do something. Because knowledge or not, that is my job.
0: So, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we are joined today by Katie Miller, who is the Manager of Community Engagement for Midland Center for the Arts. Katie, how are you today? I'm great, Karen. How are you? I'm great. It's really windy in Traverse City today, though. Like, I'm looking out my window. My next-door neighbor might lose a grill cover, (laughs) but they're in Colorado right now, so... I'll you might be taking one down the street on their behalf i might be doing just that fortunately they just moved in fortunately they finally gave me their phone number so i can tell them if that's what happens so um but yeah it's uh hopefully the wind won't be too much of a third guest or additional guest on this podcast episode
6: um is it windy in midland right now it's like it's it's barely, yeah it's like 55 60 degrees but the wind is is really howling so it's a little bit (laughs) uh, a little bit tricky when you walk outside yeah yeah so
0: uh our listeners might be getting it from both ends this uh, this howling wind guest so um yeah well thank you so much for joining us today um you know you live in midland um all these stories were from the flood uh what's your personal story of the flood
6: yeah, so, um, my, so I live in Midland uh, with my husband and my three-year-old toddler um, who was, you know, only about a year and a half at the time that the, the flood actually happened. Um, and when we moved here in early 2018, we specifically um, worked with the realtor to find a house that was not in the floodplain because we knew about the potential flooding in this region from the floods that had happened previously, I think in 2017, um, so uh, we were not directly impacted. So our house was totally fine. Um, we didn't really have to worry, but I went through when the, the warnings started coming through, we had the emergency alerts all on our phone. It was all over the news. I just started texting and calling friends that I knew potentially were in the floodplain or would be impacted and saying, are you okay? Do you want to come here? Like, do you need anything? You know, reaching out in that way. Um, and this was, but this was also, in the middle of the pandemic we'd only, only been you know at home for about two two and a half months or so so there was a little bit of that like nerve-wracking like is it safe you know to to have your friends and family come and stay with you but it's like absolutely a necessity because there was this you know huge natural disaster that was like literally coming down the river um so we started kind of off that first 24 hours kind of not knowing what was going to happen and and talking to friends in, in town being like, do you need anything? Do you wanna come here? Um, that sort of thing. And then the when, actually when the floodwaters hit, it was a little bit unbelievable. And then once the floodwaters actually started to recede and the damage was being accounted for, started seeing the, the photos run, uh, you know, start rolling and that sort of thing, um, working for the Midland Center for the Arts, we were directly impacted. So we have two separate campuses in Midland. So we have our, our main building, which houses our performance spaces and our museum spaces, our classroom spaces. But then we have a separate history campus, which hoses, houses an 1880s historic home, several museums, a working blacksmith shop, Um, event space and these beautiful open grounds. And that is directly in the floodplain. Um, And there's also um, a building on that campus that is that houses museums, but also has like conference space and meeting space and the historical society archives. Um, And that whole campus was two feet underwater at the height of the flood. Um, And so really it was, you know, probably within 24 hours of us knowing like, oh, okay, we've hit the top. The water is going to start receding. We started going into motion. So staff was called. We had sign-up sheets, you know, going and figuring out who was going to go when and what the needs were for flood remediation. And we, um, so I spent Memorial Day weekend over at the History Campus in like, you know, big waiter boots. Um, and uh, you know, work gloves that were just soaked from the from the moment I set a foot in there and started working, tearing out drywall that was about you know two feet up from the floor. So I spent you know two days just tearing out drywall, shoulder to shoulder with my coworkers, with our masks on, um, going room to room to room, cleaning all that stuff out, pulling out carpeting, pulling out wet insulation that was just dripping with dirty. <laughs> Nasty brown flood water. Um, we spent about I spent about two days doing that, bringing snacks, running um, to get supplies from various people's houses. We needed like um, dehumidifiers and fans and stuff like that, so we were collecting all of those and running around town. Um, and then the third day, so the Monday Memorial Day weekend, because I was on I was on site, showed up. Said, hey, what do we need to do today? Um, Julie Johnson, who was our director of museum said, "Oh, you have a center credit card. I need you to take these." 12 bags of wet historical quilts to a laundromat and launder them right away so they don't get moldy, right? And don't like disintegrate any further than they already have been. So I spent about four hours at a laundromat on Memorial Day weekend, um, laundering very old quilts (laughs) and pieces of fabric and kind of like historical artifacts in that way um, in the massive washers and dryers uh, here in Midland. So that was like incredibly boring, but also like incredibly important to kind of, to help, um, keep those pieces intact and make sure that they weren't damaged any further. Uh, but it was simply just because, oh, you're here, you're available, you have a center credit card, go. <laughs> um, but yeah, drywall and quilts. That's how I, I spent my first, uh, weekend after the floods
0: yeah well i imagine with the quilts i mean that actually sounds really nerve-wracking because you don't want it to get destroyed i mean did you spend the entire rinse cycle like please
6: please work out please work out (laughs) yes i like definitely had to go through these sopping wet um you know quilts going okay what what do i need to separate out what can i put in together what's really super delicate that maybe i should take home and hand wash um most of it was you know those you know back in the 1800s they early 1900s they used strong thread and so things were pretty pretty well intact but um I like definitely made a spectacle of myself pull like bringing in all of these garbage bags full of sopping wet fabric and having to pull them out and it would be like dripping wet on the floor you know so I had to go to like the laundromat (laughs) manager and be like do you have a mop that I could borrow like to clean this dripping blood water up. Um, But I was just surrounded on all sides. Every single person that was there was there because they had been impacted by the flood and they were bringing in laundry baskets and bags full of their own personal clothes and blankets and bed sheets and things like that, that had been, you know, impacted by the flood too, had been, you know, I talked to a woman who was next to me that, yeah, she had had three feet of water in her basement. Right. And so all of her winter clothes, even though they were in those like Rubbermaid tubs that you put your stuff in, um, it just, they got completely overwhelmed. Um, and so she was there laundering all of her stuff, um, right there next to me while I was doing stuff for work. Um, so that was a, had a huge impact on me personally, just seeing everybody else around me, um, and how they were impacted like that.
0: Yeah. So actually I want to back up though for one second. Uh, you said you purposely, bought a house not on the floodplain, but I mean, but a flood like this, it's just it's very unusual, isn't it? It's
6: Very unusual. Yeah, this is what they call a 500 year flood. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, but typically like we see 100 or 200 year floods, whatever height that is of floodwater water um, in the mid, greater Midland area. Um, but this is what they would term a 500 year flood, which means it's well beyond anything else that you would see so you would expect to see this once every 500 years yeah <laughs> is what that means versus you know at every and every century type um, event um so this was well beyond um what they expected however when you looked at like the flood maps because the city was well prepared for this thank goodness um they had maps where they were guessing where the flood water was going to go and what neighborhoods were going to be impacted and how high it was going to get within inches, they were able to estimate how high the floodwaters would go within inches of what the actual was. Uh, And so we were keeping a very close eye on that because while we're outside the floodplain, you're right. It's, much larger flood than Midland would typically have um, just from natural causes and so we were keeping a very close eye on that. We have friends that live not that far away that are on a creek like a creek runs basically through their backyard and they came very very close to having that creek rise up and and creep up towards their house and they are also well outside the floodplain. So the water was really coming down every single stream and tributary and like into neighborhoods that you would never think could be impacted by something because they're so far away from the river.
0: Well, it's like you knew, like you just—you knew, you knew not to buy a hug. I might actually every decision I make from this point forward, I might run past you first. Just to, that's a
6: good idea. Well, not saying I'm clairvoyant, Karen, but just—I'm just very proactive. I yeah. Was
0: so, was this the first catastrophic event that you've experienced firsthand?
6: I, in this sense, yes, like I have always lived in wintry climates. So originally from New York and Massachusetts, I went to college in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So I have experienced blizzards for certain where, you know, the whole town gets shut down and you can't go anywhere for a day or two and you're shoveling out feet and feet of snow. Experienced that in Traverse City when I lived up IU, but never anything like this where people's lives were really at risk. Um, and property had so much damage and just the whole community was so impacted. So it was a very different experience for me. And like I said, like within that first 24 hours, I was so incredibly worried about my friends and colleagues um, and their safety. And I had never really had to worry about that before because us, you know, Midwesterners, we know how to deal with snow. (laughs) Um, And so it's, you know, when you're used to it, you never really think about it, but this is something completely different. I've never lived in an area where tornadoes or hurricanes or anything like that are an issue or something you really have to think about and consider um so this was a very different experience personally for me yeah Yeah, and i remember what was it 2013
0: 2012 when we had that mesocyclone up here yeah Um, did you live here then i didn't know but i I
6: remember (laughs) i remember hearing all about it because i wasn't state at the time yeah
0: yeah yeah no it was crazy i like i grew up in the chicago area Um, like you said, like, I've never experienced anything like that where, and I was like handling it really well, like standing right at the window, looking outside, (laughs) like what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're supposed to go to your basement Karen. You're supposed to go to your basement. I did not have one. I had a Michigan basement. Um, so no, at one point, at one point I was like, I am going to join the dog in the tub because he was smart. He went right for the tub. Wow. I was like, he knows what he's doing. Um, actually the only damage to where I was living at the time, it was, uh, to the garage. Um, I had actually, my car was parked outside and I was like, oh, there's probably going to be a branch falling around here. You know, like this, this, this looks bad. So I put my car in the garage and then like the craziest thing, a branch fell in such a way that like it went through the garage roof, but it only, the only thing it did was it kept the door from opening. So like, my car was trapped in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so wow that was the extent of it but yeah like you know I've I, I mean I just can't even imagine you know like the
3: you know like being on the
0: front lines of all these things I was really struck by uh Jake Cole's story that was what his first week on the job yes. that he had to deal with the- <laughs> oh
6: my gosh and all of his experience you know 25 30 years in the field culminating in this event and you know i don't know that that's something you ever really think is going to happen um, but you're prepared for it and i feel like jake handled it with um such grace i don't know if that's the right word but like he was such an incredible leader and you could see the you know through the story he told the dedication of you know the men and women that are emergency services personnel in sanford and everyone who came to help um, And, you know, the fact that no lives were lost during the floods in any community is just such a testament to, first of all, like great communication um, across all the municipalities, um, emergency services that, you know, were so diligent going door to door, making sure that people were out of their homes and were safe Um, and people following instructions, frankly. um, You know, that's a huge part of it when you're told to, to vacate um actually listening and doing that and making sure that you and your loved ones are safe I just think it's a real testament to how the community like took it seriously came together and actually and did what needed to be done to make sure that that no lives were lost I think it's huge and I think we all really breathed a sigh of relief that that was the case at the end of all of it yeah
0: yeah I'm sure um yeah years ago you know hearsay did a theme uh The show uh, had a theme called calamity, which, you know, that word suggests something bad happened, but it was hilarious. (laughs) Um, And I mean, honestly, I mean, this one of the stories was about that mesocyclone and it was hilarious, Um, even though, you know, the the content is very serious. But just like the way it was experienced or the way the story is told, because, you know, when when you're telling the story from the past it's a lot easier to find the humor in it um so you know the audience was laughing pretty hard at these stories of hardship um but the show about remembering the flood is so different because for one thing i'm guessing everyone in the audience had experienced firsthand this very event that the stories were about
6: (laughs) yeah absolutely i I think i think that's why people came because they had some sort of firsthand experience whether it was them themselves, a family member or friend who was impacted, or they helped out with flood remediation afterwards. Um, every single person in the community, not only Midland, but Sanford, surrounding communities, even down into Saginaw, there was some flooding. Um, so many people are directly, indirectly impacted. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, on top of it, like you said, this happened, the flood happened during the first couple of months of lockdown. And then the actual show was staged when, like, we were all like, hardcore in pandemic fatigue, although like I I said that in past tense, like we're not still <laughs> in <laughs> pandemic fatigue right now, even as we speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, I mean Midland um, and the times, I mean, my my experience in Midland has been through these storytelling shows at the Midland Center for the Arts, but it struck me as a pretty tight community, even though it's like, you know, it's it's a city, but it's a small city um how how did the audience receive the show do you feel like it was traumatic to relive it again a year later or was it more like a community building I mean not traumatic but like you know like is, is it still raw for some people do you think
6: um I, we had very positive responses um, from the folks that attended and you know the emails and, and Facebook comments and stuff that we got afterwards. So I think it was a positive experience. I think in working with you and working with the storytellers, we were very careful in telling stories that would be more uplifting and show kind of how the community really did knit together um, and work together and come together in, in those you know, days, weeks, months afterwards. Um, because we didn't want to necessarily bring back that pain of of losing a home or um, you know going being woken up in the middle of the night, right, and being told to leave your home. We didn't we didn't want to bring that back up for people. So we were very conscious mm-hmm. about the stories we asked folks to tell. And I do think ultimately um, it was a, a pretty uplifting experience. And people walked away going, "Wow, we live in a really amazing community." The fact that you know Jenny Lowe mentions in her story. She took her kids out because they felt so compelled to do this. Um, And they were working shoulder to shoulder with people they've never met before, right? To help pull stuff out of people's basements and do the drywall and and get stuff out to the curb. And um, I think it's just a demonstration of of how selfless people really were in this time of need and the best of people, like how the best of people can really come out in the most stressful of times. Um, and I think, you know, it was like, oh, the pandemic. But really, once you saw what was going on, that just flew out of your mind immediately. And you're like, I'm going to strap on my mask. I'm going to do whatever I can to help my neighbors. Um, and thankfully, we did not really see a rise in, in a significant rise in COVID cases after that, because I think so much of the work was outside and pulling stuff out of people's houses and like, checking it to the curb, but uh, I think people were just respectful and cautious too, you know? And so again, that just shows the best of people and how we can really come together as a community. And I think Midland is a very tight knit community, but you will also, the stories that came out after um, and that we didn't get to include, right? Cause we only have a limited number of storyteller slots we can fill and time that we have. But um, for instance, like Midland area interfaith friends which is a, an incredible group in the area they have raised thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to help people rebuild their homes. And they were able to get a local um, design firm and contractor to rebuild homes for free for people that just absolutely were not going to be able to afford to do it on their own. And the FEMA assistance was really slow and everything else, right? So the that sense of community didn't dissipate you know, immediately following. It wasn't like, oh, back to normal. No, the flood relief efforts really continued for a long, long time afterwards. Um, I think it just shows the strength of the, of this community and and how much we care for each other. And like, certainly not perfect. We have our issues just like every community mm-hmm. does, but um, you know, I think you see that after natural disasters, but it was really um, different, I think for us, because this was like completely unexpected, something that we're not used to dealing with. Like areas that have tornadoes, you know, you kind of know what to expect, right? You're always kind of prepared for that in the back of your mind if you live in Tornado Alley, but this is, was completely unexpected, man-made disaster, you know? So um, yeah, I think it really demonstrated the best of our community and how much we care about each other. And the fact that the relief efforts just continued well past maybe what you would expect or their natural life, I think just speaks a lot about those and those people in our community that really really care about their neighbors
0: yeah that's great yeah I you know I, as you were talking I was thinking about um you know like after 9-11 happened and all of a sudden like for like for several days yeah, or maybe a week after where the, you know, there was that social commentary where it's just like everyone's just being so nice to each other and so kind and um generous of heart toward each other yeah. um and, and I remember actually, uh, whenever this was, ho- however long after the actual event happened, I was driving, I lived in Chicago at the time and I was driving on the highway and somebody caught me, cut me off and then gave me the finger. And my thought, I actually said out loud what, to myself while I was driving, I was like, oh, I guess we're done being nice to each other, you know, but, but I have to say that like, you know, like, even if it's not, you know, like you're saying, like, even if the community has its issues and, you know, like and it's not perfect like those moments like for however long it lasts it's so special to be able to see it um and be yeah. part of it
6: well so. and we had um several like, multiple shelters set up in the community at local high schools and hotels were taking people in and all of that and you know i went in uh, united way was huge you know uh of volunteers i had this great sign-up system and would send you emails and like let you know what shifts are open and where the need was. And so like I took a shift at Midland High School at like 10 p.m. one night going in cause it was a shelter and it was, you know towards kind of the end when people were starting to get able to get back into their homes or you know, had places to go. Um, and the thing that I was doing that night was literally clo- like pulling linens off of beds and getting them ready to be laundered and folding up mattresses and putting away the cots. Like that was one of the ways that I could contribute at 10 p.m. at night on a Friday was like go into the shelter and help start breaking that down. Um, And so it just, I think demonstrates a whole wide variety of need um, in various stages of that. And you know, that I had the free time, I was available, able body, like I could go in and that's a way I could contribute um, beyond, you know, all the flood remediation and stuff that I was doing for my my own organization. Um, And people really stepped up to the plate and did whatever was necessary to to help out their neighbors. So yeah, it's a, I think it just demonstrates, you know, and even in the worst of times, like we can really truly be there for each other. And it's my hope that that memory sticks with people in our community for a really long time and helps us, you know, stick together as a community. The pandemic's not over, like we're still facing challenges in various ways um, as we come out of this. So I'm just hopeful that that sense of community remains with, with everyone moving forward. Yeah.
0: So yeah, so the way um, you and I met, um, cause you lived, we didn't know each other when you lived up here in Traverse City, um, but you had reached out to me about doing a storytelling show as part of a week uh, long um, LGBT plus event programming uh, in tandem with uh, screening the movie about Matthew Sh- Shepard. Um, and I remember actually somebody stopped me in the parking lot that night after the show was over she was like you <laughs> and, I, and then she came over and she said that show was great we want more of that it was cool it was like the way again it was like you I was like oh what did I do um so uh yeah I mean there's definitely like Midland is into storytelling um you know? yeah so do you have any plans for future events I know things are I mean hearsay itself has not been on stage since February, 2020.
6: So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. We're still, I mean, because of, so the arts industry, as you well know, um, probably a lot of your listeners know, like has been really, you know, affected by the pandemic. And, um, because our whole business is gathering people together, they <laughs> made it pretty hard for us to do what we do best. Um, so the center itself, we started having outdoor events this past summer. So June of 2021, um, we were able to put outdoor stage outside and bring people back. Um, well, actually the outdoor stage, which went up in May, which is when we had the, the storytelling event about the flood. So I guess May of 2021, we did really successful programming throughout the summer. Now we're back to indoor programming as many, many venues are, and it's it's going pretty well. Like. Um, Still, I think a little nerve wracking sometimes, but people are coming back in droves. They really want that point of connection. They want to experience the arts again. They want to be able to go out with their friends and family and and have that experience together. So um, I think slowly but surely we're getting back to normal. Um, And so it is my hope that we're not going to do anything this season because we're still, you know, trying to play it safe a little bit, I think. Um, And uh, community engagement, which is, I think storytelling is like the ultimate community engagement activity, right? Like bringing people together to tell their own stories and have people hear those stories. Um, That's, you know, we're still trying to figure out what that looks like in this new reality. And, you know, as that's my job. And so I'm trying to talk to as many people as possible and say, what makes sense to you? What are you willing to engage with right now? Like, what can we do to make you feel comfortable? And also like returning to Pre-pandemic, there's all these barriers to access for the arts, right? We we know that. Um, so I am in my, you know, professional life is really thinking about that. But storytelling is definitely on the docket. I want to return to that. Um, come probably the 2220 20, what, what year are we in right now? I can't even keep track. Time has no like meaning anymore. Twenty three, twenty-four season, perhaps when we get some more of that, um, what we call perspective series. That's the series that Karen came and that first show was a part of. And then um, we get more of that on the docket and can really return to that kind of more social justice and thought provoking and conversation based programming. uh, Once we kind of get through this first year and figure out what the new reality really looks like. Um, But I will say, I know we didn't really know each other personally but I knew of you and I had seen you at various events. And I was always like, who is that woman? Like, she has cool hair, she has cool clothes, like, you're everywhere, and, you know, and so I figured out who you were, and you had this great, you know, storytelling organization, like, all of this stuff, and then when the op- the opportunity kind of presented itself, I feel like we ran in the same circles, but we never had really connected. Um yeah. And then like when this opportunity presented itself and I was building out this program, I was like, you know who I need to talk to? (laughs) I need to talk to Karen Stein. And yeah, I did. I just called you or emailed you. (laughs) Um, And it's turned into just like such a beautiful creative relationship. And I'm so glad to have you as a friend and a colleague. And I think the work you do is really amazing facilitating this at like a community level, you know, because we have these kind of moth and like these big storytelling kind of platforms. But the more personal stuff that is the person you sit next to, you know, at dinner, um, or you work, you work next to, um, I think that's really, really powerful. And so we had that program. We were in process of doing another one when the pandemic hit and we had to like cancel it, which is all about the power of women. It was I am woman, hear me roar, right? It was our theme. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we can get back to that, get back to maybe that program in particular, bring those storytellers back um but I'm really glad that we were able to work together on this and facilitate I think this moment of healing for our community and a chance for people to share not only like kind of the trauma of it but also like we said like the healing and the the great way the community came together and some moments of humor too like like you'll hear in Jake Huss's story um you hear in Jake's story about like he went into he went to this his basement and all of those balls, the colored balls from the ball pit from his kids were like floating, you know, like that's a moment that's gonna stick in your mind forever. And we laugh at it now because like that picture is, is really quite funny. Um, so finding those moments of lev- levity, like you said are so important in, in kind of remembering this is both a, a bad, you know, a bad thing, but also like a positive thing too. So, yeah.
0: Yeah no that is uh I I myself I have a hard time not bringing humor into stories just because it's I I try to find the humor in things cuz otherwise I would just like fall apart into a million pieces <laughs> but yeah. depending on what it is but yeah. but yeah no I'm actually I was really glad that you reached out and I, it was so nice of you to say that about you know who is that woman because you know like for the past <laughs> few years I've been in pajamas in my living room so nobody's saying cool clothes and of that person who's everywhere I'm in one place and in one <laughs> outfit <laughs> so, um, hopefully we we'll, we can get back to uh something at least sort of similar to where we were before someday yeah. But uh yeah, I, I look forward to uh you know hopefully working with you more or uh you know even just coming out and seeing what you guys are doing separate from hearsay. Um Midland, I actually had never been to Midland before you and I connected. It's a cool town. Um the Alden Dow House. Holy moly.
6: <laughs> that is it's so cool. It's like slightly bizarre, but it's also so cool at the same time. Anyone who wants to come to Midland, there's like uh, only a handful of fun things to do. You can come to the center for the arts. You should definitely come see me at the center for the arts. Um, we have an incredible canopy walk. We have the Dow Gardens. We have the ultimate Dow House. Um, but I think going to like the Home and Gardens is definitely something you have to do because the architecture is incredible. The story behind it is incredible. Um, it's like such a landmark um, kind of for architecture. And it's a fascinating story as well. So, and they have like a really cool mid-century modern architecture tour that has like an app that you can do on your phone. So you can like drive around Midland and see all the Aldenby Dow houses and like buildings that he designed. So I'll I'll put in a little plug there for that. But it's an app that you can download on your phone from their website. And like, it's super fun. It's super fun to do. So yeah, come see us in Midland. We'd
0: love to have you. I'm coming back to do that.
6: (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for, for uh, sitting down over the internet with me today. <laughs> You're so welcome. It's such it's such a pleasure. And again, I'm like so grateful for your work and um, for our you know friendship and professional relationship. It's such a pleasure to work with you, Karen. Thanks.
0: Very soon, hearsay will return as a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and any other podcast place you prefer to go. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to Midland Center for the Arts for collaborating on the show, and another thanks to our in-studio guest, Katie Miller. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Hope to see you all again very soon.